You may be seated. And uh, if you have your Bibles, um, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. You'll see in your worship guide that um, Keaton Paul, our Bible teacher here at the school, was supposed to preach today. And um, he had a potential exposure. And so uh, we're going to play it safe and hopefully have him here next week or the following week, but because of that, um, we had to pivot overnight, and so we're going to be in Philippians chapter 2 and carry on a, um, a theme that we have been um, looking at in our Advent series. You'll remember, children, that Advent is those Sundays leading up to Christmas, which means, Advent means coming or arrival, and it's a time when we look at the first coming of Jesus and the second coming, and we've just carried that um, into the new year. Um, and uh, again, we'll carry this on for a, a week or maybe two more. Um, but we're zooming in on Psalm 34, 18, which says, God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Hey, and, and what we've been looking at is how Jesus is in his incarnation manifesting that to us, how he is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And so we're going to go here to one of those classic texts on the incarnation of Jesus, um, him being God taking on our flesh um, in Philippians chapter 2. And so let me read this, Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1, reading verse through verse 11. This is God's word. So... If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you pray with me and ask God to bless his word preached? Let's pray. This is our ask this morning, Lord Jesus. Would your spirit minister in such a way that the prayer we just sung would be realized? All glory be to Christ our King. For you've been given a name above every name, a name to which every knee will bow, either in faith today or in judgment in the world to come. And this is our ask. Holy Spirit, make all of our knees bow in repentance and faith this morning, maybe some for the very first time 
But all of us need to have our hearts humbled under your grace. And so may we see your glory. And we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, as I had mentioned, we've been celebrating the coming of Jesus, who is God incarnate. Incarnate just means put on flesh. Um, if you're not sort of familiar with that churchy language, that Jesus was the eternal Son of God, or is the eternal Son of God, right? He was equal to the Father um, in glory. As John says, he was in the beginning, and that being God, all things were made through him. Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and that as such, as the second person of the Godhead as fully God, that Hebrews says he upholds the world by the word of his power. He's equal to God in, in all that God is. He's equal. He's equal in, in substance. He's the same as God. He's equal in power. He's equal in glory. But that at Christmas, we celebrate this profound truth that he put on flesh. And the writer of Hebrews, or as Paul says here in Philippians chapter 2, he put on our flesh. He was the fullness of God in whom he now dwells bodily. Right? He didn't stop being God. What happened when we celebrate Christmas is that he added to himself. Right? Thus Jesus was one man with two natures. He didn't stop being God. He gained a human body. And that body was more than just adding a sentimental thing to him. He added a body so that he could suffer, be tempted, rejected, and then die. He bore all of our weakness. He added this to himself. So think about this. The one to whom the angels sang, who had spoken the world into existence from nothing, who was equal in all ways to God, the same being in his essence, who was eternal and had no beginning, was incarnate in weakness. He didn't come with an army. He didn't come with grand displays and pomp and circumstance. The Son of God, when he took on our humanity, took it on, not in the form of our weakness, but in the uttermost form of our weakness. He had an umbilical cord attached to his mother in the womb, the one who had provided for every nursing baby, was now nursing at his mother's breast. The one who knew all things, who was omniscient, all things were known to him, had to learn how to walk. And what we have in the person of Jesus is the full glory of God now in weakness. Glory in weakness. That's what the incarnation was. The full glory of the Son of God being incarnate 
in weakness. Towards the end, Paul makes this point. It almost looks like the Philippians 2 always say it's, it is a parabola. The storyline is the full Son of God in all of His glory took on His weakness so that He could then be exalted in His glory, but to take us with Him. He became like us so that we could become like Him. That's what Paul is showing here in Philippians chapter 2. The glory of God enters into not just the darkness, but the weakness of humanity in order to redeem what's so broken about us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, Paul's point is this should be our mind, right? This should be the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus, that the incarnation should set the trajectory of our lives. It's an ever-growing downward trajectory If the one that you're united with embraced your weakness in the incarnation, that should shape our lives because we're followers of Jesus. We're going to follow him downward. But that then begs a question, doesn't it? That seems so ideal. It's so easy to roll off your tongue. But if you are anything like me, it is so hard to embody because we're allergic to weakness. Part of the pressure that we all feel all the time is to be strong, to run away from weakness. A, a study was done. They entered into a classroom and, and the, the researcher gave the boys in a high school classroom a piece of paper. And he said, on one side, I want you to write how people perceive you. And on the other side, I want you to write how you think of yourself. And then on the front, on the front page of these papers, all of the boys wrote some type of form. I'm, you know, I'm invincible. I have my act together. Um, I'm perceived as, you know, physically strong. Um, you know, sort of, this is who people think that I am. Why is that? Because it's, the, it's what I'm presenting to the world. And then he had them crumple up the piece of paper, then pass it around to others, and they open it up, and almost every single one of them, as it was read, this is, I'm a failure, I'm inadequate, I'm weak, I'm afraid, I'm lonely. That's the story that we live in. The world that we live in eats failure alive. There's no room for weakness. Part of the reason that we present ourselves with no weakness is because the world around us eats weakness alive. Ideas have legs. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who probably most of us have never read, have shaped our current world more than any other. And this is what he saw as the ideal man. He called it the uberman. The uberman is someone who takes control of the world around him and makes it conform to his desires. The ideal person in, in this way of thinking takes power and commands others to bend to my will throws off weakness, assumes power, and thus becomes the most real, flourishing person alive. And it resonates with us. We like it. It's not just some philosophical system out there that's red in ivory towers. We like that story. But that isn't just this world. 
That was the world that Jesus was born into. One historian writes this about ancient Rome. Weak members of society in ancient Rome, in the world in which Jesus was incarnate, weak members of society were objects not of compassion, but of derision. As an aside, this is the world that would literally throw weak babies out onto the street. More than most Romans, he goes on, most Romans celebrated strength over weakness, victory over defeat, dominion over obedience. Losers paid a harsh price and got what they deserved. And registers were ruthlessly handled. Write these things down. Record the weakness. Roman politics became a ruthless game of total winners and abject losers. The drive to dominate and not be forced to bow before a rival was paramount. Since the beginning, we've treated the world like it's a zero-sum game. There's winners and losers. And the winners are the ones who make sure they win at all expense. And yet, Jesus was born into that world in weakness. J.I. Packer in his book, Weakness is the Way of Life, which I would highly recommend to you. Anytime Packer writes anything, you should read it. Um, But this was written at the end of his life. It's sort of what he wants to say backwards. And he says this, weakness is the way of life. He says, weakness he describes as an inadequacy or insufficiency. Just not enough. You feel that? I think that's the way we wake up most days. I'm just, I feel inadequate. I feel insufficient. I look at what others are doing. This is why I call, this is why I call social media the contentment thief because it just makes us feel all more inadequate. It's already feel inadequate most of the time. And then we get on social media and we see all the awesome things that other people are doing in their curated life and we feel our weakness and inadequacy all the more. Weakness in sports. I can't excel at athletics, which means I'll always be picked last for the team. Weakness in health means that we're not strong enough to do the normal tasks that others can do with ease. Weakness of memory or intellect keeps us from excelling in our careers because weakness is inadequacy and suffering. And it feels like failure and heaps shame. Because what it leads to is, I now feel so worthless. Weakness feels like being a victim. And you'll think, I'll never be abused again. So no one will ever exert their power over me again. I will take life by the horns. Weakness feels like loss of control. And I'll never be out of control again. So I will make sure that I am always taking care of things myself and trust no one again. Weakness feels like I'm needy and I will never depend on anyone again because I've only and always been let down and hurt. And we have an allergy to weakness because it reminds us of this dark truth that is so glorious in the hands of Jesus. We are the dependent creature and not the creator. We have an allergy to weakness because it reminds us that we can't take care of ourselves. 
But in the hands of Jesus, that becomes the pathway to freedom. Because here's the reality that undergirds even that. The reason we have an allergy to weakness is because we have a hunger for glory. And we see the two as antithetical. I can either be strong and obtain glory for myself, or I can be weak and lose my hope of glory. But Jesus, but Jesus was glory incarnate and incarnate in weakness. Again, John writes, the light shines in the darkness. That's the true light that enlightens the whole world. And light in John's gospel is an image for glory, the glory that lights the whole world, that in the new heavens and new earth, there's not going to be a sun because the glory of Jesus will light day and night. It will be enough. That glory has come into the world shrouded in his humanity. He had breathtaking glory that caused the angels to erupt in praise, and yet he embraced weakness in the incarnation by becoming cursed for our sin. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself in the form of a servant, even to death, even to death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. At his birth, he was rejected. This is an hypothetical weakness. At his birth, he was rejected and born into a feeding trough where animals had left their half-chewed food and dripped spit. He deserved to be born to a king and a queen, but instead was born to a blue-collar worker's son and a teenage mother who were destitute. The nations should have gathered around him to praise and worship him, but the only ones who showed up at first were the outcast shepherds, some of the lowest men on the rung of the social ladder. They stunk so bad, no one would let them into their social groups. He was frequently accused of motives that painted him in the worst possible light. His family accused him of being mentally crazy, even though he was the truth incarnate. They called him a deceiver who was leading people astray, a man who had poured himself out into his beloved disciples for three years. One betrayed him with a kiss for 30 pieces of silver so he could gain fame and wealth. He was at the end rejected by all of his disciples because they were too embarrassed to be associated with him. He died naked and alone on a cross being mocked. There's the king of the Jews. Then his body was laid in another man's tomb. Even in his burial, the Son of Man had no place to lay his head. This is what Paul means when he says he was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He was humiliated. One author puts it this way. 
In the incarnation, Jesus assumed weak human flesh. Christ is distinct from all other men as the one who is without fault and corruption. Thus, the incarnation was for the Son of God, a humiliation beyond compare. The Son who thirsted was the same one who made water. The Son who was too tired to carry his cross was the same one who upholds the world by his power. The Son whose side was pierced was the same one who gave breath and life to the ones who did it. The incarnation of the Son of God in this world of sin and misery was the truest act of humiliation. Not just humility, humiliation. It began at his birth and continued downward until his death and burial. No one recognized his glory because he had clothed himself in our shame. You know, Jesus sung on the cross. He sung. He sung Psalm 22. It's a song of lament, a song of distress and pain. We usually don't think about songs this way as a means of expressing pain. Often our songs are uplifting and light-giving and, and triumphant, but the Bible is full of these songs of pain, of laments. We need to learn to sing this way. And from Psalm 22, Jesus sang of rejection. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The answer is because he was bearing our humiliation at the cross, he goes on, I am a worm and not a man. He who is equal to God in all of his glory begins to sing, I'm a worm and not a man. It's not false humility. It's because he was taking on our wrath. He was lamented being mocked. All who see me mock me. They wag their heads because he trusted God. He was left weak and alone. Where are you? Why are you so far from me? Because he was being humiliated for our sins. That's the heart of the gospel. The glory of God was clothed in our humiliation and shame. But that's not the end of the story, for he has been raised. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now follow Paul's path. He did this. He took on another nature, clothed in weakness, humiliated. He did all of that in our place. Now follow the trajectory. He has also ascended to his throne where he reigns forever and ever. And he didn't just take us into our humiliation. He acted and take his, taken us into his glory. That's the trajectory of the incarnation. His humiliation his weakness leads to his glory and us with him. 
C.S. Lewis says this in his book on miracles. God became man. Jesus goes down to come up again and to bring the whole ruined world with him. Jesus came down in the incarnation to be clothed in your shame so that at the resurrection you could be clothed in the glory of his exaltation. And do you see what that means? That if your faith is in Jesus, the Christian, the followers of Jesus, the ones who are one with him by faith, are now glory in weakness. You are not your weakness. That's just the extra added on. What's most true about you is that you have been given the earned glory of Jesus. Not because you've earned it, but because he earned it in your place. Your status has been changed. That In your union with Jesus, you have the same name of Jesus. You've been brought into, you were once outcast under the wrath of God, the judge of all the earth, but you've been brought into his household so that you are the son equal to the son. You've been adopted and given God's spirit so that you are now God's temple. And you look at your life and say, I'm not fit to be a temple. You're right, but you're fit to Jesus and he is fit to be the temple. You've been given his spirit all based on the work of another. You know, in the glory days of the 80s and 90s, the beginning of the Chicago Bulls dynasty years, in the 89-90 season, there was one player who played a role player role, Stacey King. He averaged 15 minutes a game, which meant he was just there to bring a little relief so that the stars could catch their breath. But one night, one night, he contributed to a glorious victory. Together, he and Michael Jordan scored a combined 70 points together. You see, it was on that night that Jordan scored his career-high 69 points. And what did Stacey King contribute? Well, some of you might say he just gave his one point, and then we want to follow up with, see, everyone gives a little, and it contributes to the team, but let's be honest, one point, that's weakness. It's nothing. And that's what Stacey King contributed, his weakness. But, but the heart of the gospel is embraced in that moment. He attached his weakness to the glory of another. And together, they rode to victory. That's the heart of the gospel. Except if we don't bring one point to the game, we bring, we bring nothing but massive failure. Like these are, like imagine, imagine the Bulls went and found some guy um, who who never seen a basketball before and only shot in the wrong team's basket. And Michael Jordan's like, I got this. You and I are going to play together. We'll win. I wish that I wish that story ended. Well, I don't wish it ended with 
um, the Bulls winning the championship. That was the year they lost to the Pistons. But King kept riding. And that dynasty grew on the back of two players. And King rode to a championship victory, bringing nothing but attaching himself to great, glorious men who could win at all costs. And that gospel should create a radically different community. This is Paul's point in verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, he's, he's asking this tongue-in-cheek, if you've got any encouragement from this, any comfort from that kind of love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection, sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having that same kind of love, being of full accord in one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And you see if that commandment, consider others more significant than yourself, just stands in a vacuum, it loses its power. But then Paul goes on, but you've ridden on the back of the incarnate Son of God who was humiliated and then has taken you to his glory. And if so, operate that way. You've got nothing to lose now. You see, we are made for connection. It's one of those cultural moments that accentuates this. I mean, so much of what we lost during the pandemic is connection. Free-flowing community has been taken from us. But here's one of my fears. Some of us are okay with that. Because it feels safer. I'm okay with the isolation. It just feels safer. I'm, I'm okay with being away and not being involved in people's lives. It just feels safer. But if we're going to be connected to others in kind of the life-giving way, that God intends for the gospel to produce. We have to deal with our own weakness and shame because embracing weakness heightens community. Who would you rather be around? Someone who's always talking about themselves and their accomplishments or someone who's humble and honest about their struggles? You talk, you just... You've been in small groups where someone just lets their guard down and begins to be honest about their struggles. And it is one of the most holy, glorious moments that you can imagine. All pretense is gone. And you see what's happening at that moment. It's glorious because that person is embracing the heart of the gospel. Glory and weakness. Brene Brown in her famous TED Talk on shame just asks two questions at the beginning. If you've seen this, she asks this, how many of you struggle to be vulnerable because vulnerability seems like weakness and like all the hands in the room go up? And then she asks this question, when you watch people on this stage being vulnerable, how many of you thought it was courageous? And she says, that's the paradox, and all the hands go up again, as you would imagine. She says, that's the paradox of relationship. When I see vulnerability is 
courage in you, but the way I feel in my own heart is that vulnerability is inadequacy. And so I'm drawn to your vulnerability, but I'm repelled by mine. And the point that she's making is we should all be vulnerable and courageous. But the thing that I want to ask her back is, on what grounds are you giving me to be comfortable being vulnerable. But now you see how the gospel works. If I'm rooted in the gospel, then I can be vulnerable in my relationships because I've been secured by the glory of another. This is my big, this is my big critique of Brene Brown. Her thing is, Build an identity for yourself so you're free to be vulnerable. Well, I can never be. I can either be fake or vulnerable, and I can't be both. And so I'll choose fake vulnerability because it seems like the win. But if the Son took on my flesh, bore my curse, was humbled in the form of a servant, became became like me in all ways, including under the wrath of God, so that I could be like him in all ways, exalted to the right hand of God and member in his house, beloved by the Father and given his spirit, then I, I could be vulnerable. What am I going to lose? I'm free to embrace my weakness. It's, it's hard. It, just, it doesn't come automatically like this goes on, but this is like the struggle that is at the heart and I think is at the heart of going forward for all of us post-pandemic. I think so many of us would be so much better off and so much healthier if we were just like, yeah, I'm not doing well. I'm just not doing well. Gospel community is a community that doesn't just embrace this truth, but is so shaped by it that we're not surprised by the failure of others because... seen what's in me and we're not turned off by the failure of others because i've seen what jesus has done for me it gives us the freedom a community that looks like the incarnation gives us the freedom to become on the outside what we really are on the inside because on the outside we've been exalted to the right hand of god the father that's what's most true about me His wrath has been removed, and his delight and love is on me. And so let's become who we really are, glory and weakness. Let's pray. Lord, confess, so hard, it's such a beautiful truth. Create such an amazing community if the same mind was in us that was in Christ Jesus we found the encouragement and love in the gospel, any hope, any joy, we live that out. So please, by your power, make us like the sun. God, we, we need, oh, how we hunger for this. Oh, we need you to do it. And so gather us around as you gather us around your table. Gather us in joy that we belong to the Savior. For in his name that we pray, amen. Well, you should have found at your seat a communion cup. If your faith is in Christ, I invite you to this table. If you've been 
baptized into his name, then you have the name that is above every name. You have his glory. And this table is a family meal where the king sits with us. You'll find on page 11 of your worship guide this responsive reading. Christ has come. In him, God will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. And Christ will come again. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.